right. Well, good morning and afternoon. Welcome, gentlemen. We're convening for our second episode of discussion of sacred naturalism. And for today's session, we've been thinking about first looking at the discussions that we've all had now around the elusive eye, especially that wonderful series that you just did with John and Chris. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I really feel that there's a number of things that were surfaced in that exploration that are relevant to our project here for sacred naturalism. Absolutely. And we got some feedback from people on our last episode that they'd really like us to spell out more what we mean by sacred when we're talking mm -hmm. about sacred naturalism and Good. how it relates to um, both materialist and, and, you know, other spiritual orientations mm -hmm. and what's the balance there that we're striking. Um, we've been thinking about what are we talking about here? If anything, that's really new mm -hmm. in addition to, you know, things that have already been attempted in terms of bringing forward a naturalist spirituality. There are some movements we can talk about. Mm -hmm. um, I think the theme of centauric development, um, mm -hmm. where we're integrating you know, our, our embodied being, our animal being, and our higher capacities, and how that relates to a naturalistic spirituality and, and developing a wisdom civilization, and really possibly looking at where we can go especially educationally or in other programs that, you know, if, if we were forwarding a sacred naturalist perspective more, what would mm -hmm. we do differently in our, uh, you know, in our different institutions, educational and otherwise? Totally. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> thanks for having, it's good to see you guys. Uh, and uh, thanks you both. I want to, I want to be on record here. I thought the conversation you guys had uh, in the eye for an elusive eye was uh brilliant and entertaining and, and really enriching. Uh, so I, I've deeply enjoyed my walks as I, as I listened to that. You hit on a couple of things that were really exciting. And actually, although I enjoyed it throughout, it was at the end, the last half an hour you guys hit on that seemed to be particularly relevant, maybe in this context. Um, that was when you were articulating sort of a consolidating model of egoic development and the self and consciousness about what we could be shooting for in society. Uh, what's a proper kind of level of development? Wh where should we be trying to coalesce? What does it mean in relationship to um, develop a self in the 21st century? Uh, what is sort of the contours of that? I thought the way in which you kind of brought in integral theory and the conversation that we were having around the centaur self was uh, really very reasonable in relationship to, I believe we have to, I talk very often about getting in touch with the primate and the person. Um, that pretty much aligns with that concept and how to do that vertically uh, through the body, into the heart, into the human mind justifying and into the transcendent spirit, how to do that, and then horizontally with others. <clears throat> I thought the way you dialogued about sort of what we could potentially cultivate and then how to educate um, sort of the collective worldview in that direction uh, and what a wisdom culture or wisdom orientation in a society would be was you know, it was really as about of all, I had a lot of inspiring moments inside the series. Uh, that was a, an extra outside the series moment or really a continuation of it because it took to me some of the concrete implications that we were delineating and then put them really in societal context. So uh, I'd love for us to riff a little bit off of that, but I first want to start off with, man, thank you for that. And I think that's a really powerful and interesting uh, exchange you guys had. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm as always, very happy to be amongst you guys again. Uh, 
where two or three of us are gathered in the name of the living spirit. There it is <laughs> under every stone and in the split of every wood. <laughs> uh, I've got sort of three things on my mind, although I'm super keen to get into all the areas you guys are talking about. Uh, the first is what I'm retaining uh, in the front of my mind about the elusive eye thing, which is mm. this uh, notion of a trans justificational mode and how that might be differentiated a little bit from some forms of spiritual cultivation. Yep. As well as what you mentioned in terms of what what is the ethical target around which a wisdom civilization should coalesce, because the aim is not to get everyone to be Buddhist right away. Like, what's the mm -hmm. minimum stable platform we could expect and help facilitate? Uh, and I'm thinking about um, sacred materialism, which is a phrase Bruce and I have used in the past as a mm. sort of variant of sacred naturalism, where the transcendent mm -hmm. is understood as inherent to the manifest. Uh -huh. And I think uh -huh. that affords us some interesting conceptual options relative to uh, validating a sacred naturalism. Uh -huh. I was thinking actually about uh, the Indian guru Osho had, has this uh -huh. video, this old riff where he talks about the word fuck. And he says, like, uh -huh. since Nietzsche pointed out that God was dead, the chakras have been flipped. Uh -huh. We used to think the most valuable thing was an abstract, aspirational, impersonal thing above us. But now uh -huh. we have to put our spiritual trust in what's below in depth and solidity uh -huh. and biology and materiality. Uh -huh. He goes into all the different modal grammars of how you use that word. It's, it's adorable, uh -huh. but I think it's uh, also poignant uh -huh. to think about a non-pejorative materialism, which is experienced uh -huh. as suffused with the divine uh, rather than as the antithesis of the divine. And I think that illustrates one of the key things about spirituality that isn't always discussed, which is you resolve and transcend contradictions in mm. spiritual practice totally. right so the, the notion of the world as opposed to the transcendent is something to overcome uh, in the same way that all kinds of value oppositions have to be made more adjacent and brought together until you reach a sweet spot where they're both irradiated and joined in profound teamwork amen amen <laughs> <Good to be laughs> <here>. <laughs> It's common in integral spiritual circles to talk about, especially the evolutionary enlightenment kind of movements, where we look at who we are and what we are as continuous with basically the cosmological developments from the very beginning. Yep. And there's a way to read that that maybe is more woo, and there's a way to read that that is less woo. <laughs> and I really feel like what you explored with John and Chris in the original Lucive Eye series was a perspective on that that's really grounded in, I think, solid science and, and, and leading edge research into the dynamics of, of you know, uh, the coalescence of matter into more complex system and the emergence of autopoetic dynamics and how there's self-referentiality and ultimately self-sense emerging out of that. Um, so that really affords a a way into thinking about being participant in that overall evolutionary impulse. And I think really the way that we talked about adjacent dynamics and, and uh -huh. prepositional dynamics also touches into that so, in, in trying to outline this architecture of the unfolding of of holes and 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 self-like entities um at multiple stages. So um so. I think there's that kind of connection that we can make to, you know, what's going on in the, the integral circles um, from a, I think a naturalist point of view. 
Absolutely. I really appreciate it. And that's where I was excited with the beginning of the conversation because that's <clears throat> you guys <clears throat> entered in. And that's one of the things that sort of transformed me over the last, you know, I'm born and bred sort of new atheist, scientist, skeptic, and see, you know, I'm very suspicious of woo in my own upbringing. And now I really see how constraining that has been, you know, and, and, and how dismissive. Uh, and I think this is one of the real challenges of a straightforward modernist view. It's got an arrogant dismissive, that massiveness that constrains and then localizes you in sort of an a-meaningless, a meaningless materialism, a nihilistic materialism. And I can certainly see myself in that constraint historically. And the sort of evolution of the tree of knowledge into the garden then really is a freeing of that. But it's also the case that it's very hardcore anchored into the scientific worldview. And that's one of the things that's very exciting is that it bridged that. To find John, who basically... Um, I think bridges a very similar kind of set of systems in general. And then to find his uh, recursive relevance realization as a model of cognition uh, and the 4P model to then plug into sort of the evolutionary behavioral into clinical model that, you know, was at least the most salient elements is really cool. And your point, and to me, this really then gets into what we can socialize around as well. If this scientific thing basically can frame with as much on a kind of scientific logos, the nature of the self, the egoic justification process that the transpersonalists and other mystics have been saying for a hell of a long time. And that orientation is how to live a fulfilling lifestyle. Well, damn, that's a very important bridge, right? I mean, that's a very important like worldview bridge to just sort of wake up around an integrated pluralistic worldview uh, and to make that connection. So I was really super thrilled you guys made it. And I certainly what speaks to my own experience. I've spent less time in academia and because it's sort of like, hey man, wake up people. <laughs> you know? there's, a, there's, a, there's a pathway here that affords um, both on the humanistic side and the embodied living side and the scientific richness side, cohesion. You know, there's an opportunity for genuine coherence and cohesion here that trans, you know, so what, whatever game you're playing, I think it's win-win as far as I'm concerned. So I was glad you guys brought that to the for yeah that tension between um the the straight jacket of straightforward modernity which is also a set of skills and insights that we have to help people assimilate more yes. broadly and more deeply but between that and the notion of a more coherent naturalism there's a lot of room to play in there and it seems essential it makes me think of the problem of modern architecture which is the mm. school of architecture that said uh, form should follow function uh -huh. which is a very plausible principle, and yet it's the most universally hated style of architecture <laughs> in history, right? And so why is that? It's because the number of functions that the form was following were too few. It was narrow, linear, temporary, and in the service of mm. privileged industrial scale production instead of human mm -hmm. flourishing. And then people are coming along like Buckminster Fuller saying, no, no, if you followed function, if you did things officially, you would be living in something that looks like the inside of the geodesics of a flower. That's form mm. following function. And people would walk away going, wow, that feels really good because right. we have all these other functions that need to be integrated in the structure. And if we can do that scientifically with the model and then also with the practice, then rationality and an embrace of the world really becomes very much like a grounded, balanced spiritualism. Amen. That's like a, that's a good model for like a sacred naturalism. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I need to say that I was really psyched about was um, especially the way you were talking layman about the, the internalization of justification, you know, I'll make a plug for that concept. 
uh, because I mean, we talk about the ego, we talk about cultural belief, value systems, rationality. There are a huge number of terms. I landed on justification for a particular uh, complicated but nuanced set of reasons. I was really thrilled to hear that language really pick up. And the insights that were afforded in it seemed to at least jump off of the discussion you were having. And that is, I've really felt the layer of justification being able to be seen and grasped and then the need to both transcend it from above and ground it from below as being sort of like a very clear, what is the spiritual extension model that's holistic? Of course, that speaks to some of the things that you were bringing in terms of inverting and Bach and things along those lines. But that's a, that I, I very much felt sort of when I get into wisdom energy, the uh, as above, so below expansion and maintaining this sort of dimension of justification is crucial, but getting adjacent to it in a particular proper perspective, I think that's one of the 21st century challenges uh, to cultivate cells that can do that. Yeah, you want to say more on that, Lema, before I, I want to say something? No, no, you, you go ahead, Bruce. I'm going to mull that a little bit. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, I want to bracket that because I think that's really important and it's going to be folded into the whole conversation just you also referenced you know again sacred naturalism and i wanted to kind of come back to answer some of the the viewers questions Please. about you know why are we using this word sacred and do we need to use that word why would we apply it in this way and you know just thinking about that sacred it means it's an interesting it, it's a it's a dynamic word and it's a relational word it's not a substantive word you know, when we call something sacred, it means it's something that has been consecrated or mm -hmm. something that has been set apart as mm -hmm. special or worthy of value and extra care. And so it's not speaking to necessarily any imagined necessary intrinsic extra dimensional, you know, metaphysical qualities there, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's an enactment. It's a human or a, a, a sapient relationship. And so I don't want to, you know, play into, you know, the, the common. And, and I think now, for the most part, as, as you and John also explored, outmoded materialist view, you know, that just says that, that matter is, is this inert, meaningless, empty stuff. Um, but there, you know, and, and that, through sacred, we're just projecting something, you know, of human, limited human, but utilitarian human value onto mm -hmm. a backdrop that ultimately is empty and without value or, or purpose or anything like that. So I don't want to, you know, get into that kind of uh, right. dichotomy. Um, that's a kind of uh, nihilism, a kind of negative nihilism. But we do live in a world space where for, for, you know, I would say more popularly than really in, in deep science, but more mm -hmm. popularly, there are a lot of people who think, you know, matter is kind of a, a meaningless blank screen for human projection. You know, that's mm -hmm. the, the nature of what we call disenchantment. Mm -hmm. And their matter has just been reduced to things like to, to resource base, to mm -hmm. something that is there for us to have on hand and use. It doesn't care about us. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you know massively impersonal, and there's something you know bracing and you know existentially impactful to confront 
the idea of a universe that's so much faster to us that our our concerns are petty in the face of that, you know, and so I, I don't want to bracket that out either. But I think we have an opportunity to say, you know, what kind of attitudinal change in us can set nature again at a sacred distance, mm. um, set it apart so that it is held with special regard and not repeating there the split that says humans are here and nature is over there. Right. That That's, you know, not something that we're going to be doing, but I think we can enact something like that, not by elevating nature in a, a metaphysical way, but really mm -hmm. just by drawing close to our own knowledge of it. Now, the more that we look deeply into what the natural world is like, what mm -hmm. matter is like, we realize that we actually, it's actually still fundamentally mysterious what matter is. It has depth to it and potential to it. We don't know, we, we know the behaviors of matter and we can mm -hmm. map the behaviors of matter, you know, mathematically. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, you can say matter in some ways is as mysterious to us or even more so than consciousness. At least consciousness, we, we have a direct apprehension of it. Matter, we just keep digging deeper and deeper. And we don't, you know, there are a lot of mysteries still there. And not to romanticize those things, but to recognize that there's a depth there, a creative, dynamic, really astonishing display <laughs> that, you know, that the universe prevent, presents us with. The whole cosmic story. And, mm -hmm. and the nature of our, our beings as, you know, material, energetic, informational mm -hmm. entities, it, it really is pretty striking. Um, mm -hmm. I sometimes have used the word playfully, but uh, mata realism instead mm -hmm. of materialism, mata mm -hmm. meaning mm -hmm. mother and realism instead of, you know, so mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. a realism about the maternal matrix mm. that is the source of the unfolding of all of the forms that we appreciate. And it's both, you know, vast in its time scales and it's always ephemeral. It's always vanishing. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think we can, we can shift into a, an orientation that, that is mata realistic, that, that mm -hmm. basically mm -hmm. honors that maternal imminent sacred, depth underneath this whole unfolding evolutionary display beautiful beautiful well if i um speak to what the sacred seems to be in my mind mm -hmm. it there's a danger that it's going to sound like i'm saying it's just projected and i want to remove the word just from that like it is mm. projected and projection is very interesting it's not neutral Right. There's a texture to the screen of the projection in a sense. Right. It has its own underlying computational architecture that favors certain alignments over others. So we perform this thing that is like projection more or less successfully for ourselves and for our communities. And this is really one of our most important functions. Right? We need it in order to organize our psyche and our society. So when that happens, for me, sacred is like a it's a perception that's so vivid and so precise and so well organized that it's 
approximation of perfection spills over and becomes as if a luminosity that transcends and includes the components that are being perceived, which can then act as a coordination point for reaccessing optimal experience uh -huh. or for living differently with others. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And that can be done by, it can be encouraged by a variety of inner practices, but also by sociocultural practices where we can collectively standardize some things as objects of worthy projection. So you know, this is our holy mountain, or this is the holiness of my child or something like that. Mm -hmm. We all have, we're subconsciously primed to do those in certain ways. And there's a machinery there that we need to know how to take advantage of because to not do it makes our lives destitute of meaning and to do it wrong leads us to destruction. So we have to know how it works and do it well. Brilliant. Yeah, no, that's both of those things uh, certainly speak very similarly to why I conceptualize. So I, I certainly see, um, uh, I'll say a couple of things. So one is, I think that there is a scientific epistemology that does basically the way a scientific epistemology works in terms of the rules of the game that it's set up is to emphasize correspondence models with what is and to minimize the value-based projections onto that screen. And that's been a very useful epistemological problem uh, pr process to describe the unfolding in essentially a quasi-amoral light. And that affords a particular kind of discovery of ontological processes that we didn't know about prior to, and to give a transcendent realist picture of the universe. That's how we discover the Big Bang. But that is a particular lensing structure um, that is very actually foreign to humans in a particular way. And it is designed to lens out the kind of aesthetic and ethical value structures that are in the universe, but it's designed to position you outside of those particular kinds of concerns. So while that's valuable, it is a huge mistake to say, well, we can adopt a scientific perspective and then discover that the universe is amoral. That is not what science is about. It's a particular epistemological frame that's useful for elucidating particular kinds of processes. And it then stays silent on other kinds of processes. But we need to then bring additional epistemological frames to get a whole picture, like the epistemological frame of being in the world as a normal human being, where I care significantly about what happens to my kids <laughs> and what I eat and the beauty I see in the world. Okay. The beauty I see in the world and we, and the, the, um, from my vantage point, the scientist describes that, oh, well, and in my language, I describe it as an investment value system in terms of, oh, that's the functional return that I'm getting on investment. That is a way to describe the unfolding in the lived experience. It's my entire aesthetic organization of being. And then that creates an entire, through my eyes, you get a creation of a whole range of genuine value. Um, and meaning, as uh, Zach Stein talks about, is the world for him, from this perspective, the world's pregnant with meaning. And that's not epiphenomenal. It's just, it's a fundamentally different perspective. And then we would shift from my own sort of appreciation for aesthetics into the global collective about the values of what be as we humans live in nature. And then you scan the various possible outcomes and you see a, a continuum of valuation. To me, that is what is sacred, meaning that as you push and say, well, what are the things, what are the things that orient you towards wisdom and these kinds of outcomes where individuals are in harmony, filling soul fulfillment, clarifying the nature of the functional form and being in sustained harmony or whatever particular kind of relation that is valued 
versus World War II, you know, <laughs> and all the potential chaotic suffering, misery, and destruction. That continuum of being, um, to me, is collectively they're sacred, and it places our sacredness in our mythos, in our shared understanding. And I would want to cultivate a, a sort of an educational experience of being in the world so we collectively share in a vision of an integrated pluralistic value system where we're clear that this is, it's too simplistic to say we shallowly project, but we are embedded and reciprocal in an agent arena environment individually and collectively. And that that's that aspect, when we aspectualize that component, that is embedded in our existence in a very real way. I think sometimes the criticism of making romantic projections onto nature, onto the material world are, are well-placed, but they're, they're, they're targeting what I think Lehman is talking about as bad projection, yep. right? When I'm saying we need to get close to matter, mm -hmm. um, setting, a, you know, setting the, the natural world apart as sacred is a relational gesture that invites us to draw into deeper communal investigatory you know relationship with with you know the matrix of our being the, the natural world that when we have deepened insights into the value that's there and to the depths and the potential that's there and the potential for having right relationship um, is there you know that's there is still that element of projection of us forming a picture, but it's it's growing out of a relationship. It's not the surface function of projecting hopes on to you know a blank screen out of existential insecurities and you know um, things like that. You know, uh -huh. it's it, it's a relational process and and that process of projection is properly understood a way towards deepening intimacy with the other, with the subject. Mm. Uh, this image just came up my mind a minute ago, right? So you've got, here's our animal nature, and then there's this socio-narrative justification capacity nature, mm -hmm. and then there's this other possibility of some kind that I would probably argue has two different modes in which it can proceed toward its vanishing point. So there's a way in which the sacred is what allows that um, narrative band to be more conductive, right? To for energy to pass up and down through it. So you can get more people to the top range where the justification narrative uh, helps them position themselves well to do self-cultivation or self-transcendental practice. Um, but there's also a way in which, like you were saying before, it has to be more and more anchored in what our organic and material condition is. So more and more of those organic and material patterns have to flow into our narrative space. Our narrative space has to show us what the world below us is like so yep. that that energy can flow all the way through to establish a platform from which you can start moving forward. So that's one of the things. Sacred is what enables that and results from that is another way to think about it. Beautiful. And to me that the cultivation of a meta-modern integral consciousness, right, to me allows then to us to see 
wait a minute, you have an oral indigenous emergence of the narrative in nature, right? And, and then all of a sudden we start building civilizations. I like to think that civilizations, uh, Aslan talks about God, a human history. I like to see, think of civilizations as emerging out of the concept of God. We needed to come together. We built temples. That requires agriculture. That sets the stage for a traditional civilized culture. But when we do that, that advances our separation from nature in a particular way because technology becomes so powerful that we begin to transition. And that accelerates when we get to modernity. So, so modern reasoning uh, causes us to individuate, to separate, to achieve enormous power and control over nature in a particular kind of way. Um, and now I think we're seeing that the global pragmatic civilization consequence of that through a postmodern critique and ecological potential disasters, we're like, oh God, that thing is deeply problematic. <laughs> you know, that thing can go off a clip. And at least at the level of like, what's a pragmatic need for us to hold both the spiritual orientation, which then, you know, I think critiques Nietzsche's concept, well, if you kill God, and I'm like, well, it depends on what you mean by that in relation, right? And if you're thinking about it from like what science did to Christianity, okay, but there are other possible modes in relationship to appreciate the sacred. And then also to say globally, wait a minute, what kind of consciousness can we appreciate in relation? And that is one that understands our primate self, pulls into an oral indigenous, watches the evolution of technology, and now sees ourselves in a particular kind of way that affords the capacity to include and transcend each of these modes and build off of them to create a functional form that's sustainable and holistic and fulfilling. Yeah, that's beautifully put. In a past conversation with Lehman, I think it was a, a live conversation we did called Finitude. Hmm. Um, I brought in some notions from Japanese aesthetics. Huh. And when we think about, you know, the advances of science and, and, you know, both cognitive science and psychology, but also physics and all of those others, you know, a lot of it has been afforded by the development of a really powerful yoga, the yoga of objectivity. That's a mm. phrase that ecological mm. philosopher Henrik Skolomowski uses, but he wants to highlight that, you know, objectivity, you know, contrary to what spiritualists often say that the objective gaze is alienating and, you know, no, it, it's an incredibly powerful gaze. And it's, it's a gaze that has allowed us to achieve really unimaginable prior to the development of this skill levels of intimacy with uh, the nature and structure of being, you know, the, the, the strides that we've made are extraordinary based on the cultivation of that yoga. So it's a very important use of our, you know, our, you could say metaphorically our visual capacity, mm -hmm. right. You know, to, 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 to use our gaze in this way, it's a particular skill set, but there are other ways that we can be with nature. And I think a sacred naturalism in no way would bracket out or, or get rid of the, uh, the yoga of objectivity, but it would want to bring in other modes of engagement and being with nature in the world than just that. So that we have a fuller sense of the, you know, of, of, you know, that that sacred matrix of being. So 
one of the ideas in Japanese aesthetics is mono no aware, which is it's an appreciation for the transience of things, for uh, you know, it, it's a being with things to to value them in their transient presence, mm. and you know we know that we're moving towards heat death of of the universe. That's very likely, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a Hagland and uh, John Caputo and other people are looking in this direction that. Some people will say that because the world is going towards death, there's no value. Hmm. But this is kind of flipped from this perspective in that it's the very transiency of things. It's the sheer giftedness of things in their arising and vanishing that makes them precious, that makes them valuable, that, that impels us you know, to appreciate and value things and, and to, to you know, treat the world in, in particular ways um, that, uh-huh. you know, that um, are meaningful and that if we only looked at a, a, a world in which things were infinite and unchanging, mm-hmm. ultimately we wouldn't value it the same way. There would be no reason to be engaged by it or directed towards it. It would always be there, right? So mm-hmm. um, mano no is cultivating, you know, a sense of the pathos of things and, and empathy towards mm-hmm. things in their arising. So that's one, one sensibility. And another one is Yugen. And Yugen appreciates the elusiveness and suggestiveness of, of the material world. And here you can use it both in terms of elusive and elusive, mm. where both there's something, you know, that's slippery. And we, we, as we discussed in the, you know, the, the recent uh, elusive eye video, mm-hmm. there's something elusive about the uh, things in their identities. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also something elusive, something suggestive. And in Japanese aesthetics, Yugen is not pointing towards some other world mm-hmm. behind things, but to the depth dimensions of things that are not always apparent on the first encounter. And which basically in that elusiveness, it calls forth, and here I'm using the E word, in the elusiveness of nature, it calls forth our imaginal participation mm. with it to, to fill it in and to form deeper relationships with that. Um, so David Michael Levin talks about you know different ways to work with the senses, but one of the things he talks about is the cultivation of Galassenheit. Hmm. And the yoga of objectivity demands a certain kind of focus. And Galassenheit is a way of looking that lets go. Uh, actually, Nietzsche calls this um, an example, Galassenheit, an example of willpower. Hmm. But in this case, the willpower is not to go towards something, but actually to suspend will. There's a willpower involved in the suspension of will so that we open ourselves up into a mode of 360 degree receptivity in the face of the arising of things Mm. Um, to let things um, disclose themselves 
in ways that, you know, um, maybe they wouldn't disclose themselves only if we were looking through the objective analytical mode. Um, so I think, yeah, those, those forms of sensibility could inform a sacred naturalism to help us develop a, you know, a fuller palette of uh, sensory and relational approaches to things. And the last little comment I want to make on there, just speaking, riffing on the Japanese aesthetic is especially the adjacent picture of the self that, uh, and prepositional um, that Lehman and I talked about where the self almost touches itself, but not quite, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. There's always that, that little differentiate, uh, differential. Mm -hmm. um, the Japanese symbol of the Enso is really a nice symbol for that kind of self, where it's both wholeness, but the lines don't quite mm. touch. Right. Um, there's that little gap, that little slippage point, which is the room in the whole for novelty, for unfolding, for future development, um, all of that. Yeah, I think the, uh, there are ways in which the, the great Zen practitioners nailed this very clearly, right? especially, I think, Hakuin, who put so much work into the specific structure of koans and also gave us you know, the most famous, almost completed circle. Uh, and koans make me think of, of Christ, which I was so glad that uh, Chris brought up through Kierkegaard, uh -huh. not because we want to privilege the Christian language game, but because Kierkegaard's approach is so profound and Zen-like in so many ways. Totally. Right. And that this is, Bruce, you were talking about these Japanese aesthetics. This is a figure of absolute finitude. This is the, the death of the absolute comes to an end at this point, but it's also an elusive figure, right? It seduces uh -huh. us and draws us forward. It's maybe the major european version of both those aesthetics you were talking about from the last mm. two thousand years and i think anybody who's seen uh you know salvador dali's paintings of christ <laughs> will mm -hmm. sort of get a sense of of the zen dimension and that kierkegaardian dimension of uh, this is absolutely uh engaging and seductive and it transfigures but doesn't cancel finitude mm. and i think that uh, i mean obviously there's a strong uh, parallel between the finitude and the material and the natural and the mortal that what we need is a transcendental spirituality that does not flee from the finite and the factual but imbues them with this capacity and you were talking about bruce the you know the types of meditations that involve intentionally suspending your will to some degree so that you are a field of transparent well-organized clear perception uh -huh. and you you know you could hardly ask for a better position uh, in which to start super organizing your perceptions, right? Because you're going to say like, this one's jumps out. I'm not going to let you jump out. I'm going to let you all be approximately equal in my perception and cognition. And that's a situation where they can start to harmonize as a team and present you with that overwhelming, that Kensho, that Satori that's so huge in the Zen tradition. And that beatific experience, the transfiguration of the mortal without canceling the mortal that is so central to the Christian uh, mythos. Totally. And I love that in relationship to is we, if we think about, okay, sacred naturalism, the elusive eye, the emergence of these sort of schemas, building science to integral, what, what kind of message and what kind of consciousness, and, you, and this is some of these guys, things that you guys are talking about in the development of the self, 
that we need. So from my vantage point in relationship to where we are, a big part of our task is to cultivate a particular relationship with our systems of justification. Now, historically, especially in the traditional modern world, although postmodernism tries to challenge this some, the, the justification, whether it's reason and rationality and science or Christianity or whatever, you live inside the worldview and find yourself placed in that domain. Now, the Eastern traditions would have afforded, I think, you know, the Tao is not the Tao. They afford definitely a particular perspective on way to get adjacent and beyond the justifications. I think the West and globally, we need to do this um, uh, very much so. Like this is a somehow we need to, this is why we need to reach to the West, East to cultivate this. What you were just describing in relationship um, is very much, I think, also John's vision in terms of all the, sort of orienting and isolating uh, the adverbial consciousness function um, and trying to get us out of narrative and into observing and recognizing that this aspect of framing can be differentiated from adjectival consciousness, differentiated from narrative consciousness, and afford a connection to the self, you know, as I call it the epistemological portal. I think that if we can help people understand to separate, to situate, to then to be anchored, but also not reactive, to have the will that allows you to ground and detach from your needs, detach from reactivity, and perceive across a wide variety of different ones. That's the kind of vision logic uh, perspective that I think affords the kind of sensibility that can be achieved. I don't know, but I think that if we cultivated ed our educational systems, parent, teacher, clinical systems correctly, that is an achievable sensibility for individuals. I think it needs to be specified and delineated and tra uh, trails of development of how you cultivate it is key. But if we can achieve a consciousness where individuals are able to get to that kind of phase, um, I think that's a very, a good aspiration for society when we think about, well, what are we educating when we educate selves? <laughs> are you going bruce <laughs> i heard you and so i thought maybe you were going to say something there i was just a grunt of appreciation okay. <laughs> i also have a primal grunt of appreciation for that <laughs> a little, give a little primate hoop yeah a little whoop whoop yeah no I, yeah definitely really appreciate that and you know uh i've appreciated what uh Raimon Panikar has uh, attempted to do. He's a, uh, a Catholic priest um, who is considered one of the, the fathers, uh, the, the, you know, one of the founders of a really robust post-modern and post-postmodern form of interreligious and intercultural mm. dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. And I think what he's doing in his whole project is really valuable for what John is looking at with Dialogos mm -hmm. um, and what we can do educationally. But the reason I'm bringing him up here is one of his concepts is uh, sacred secularity mm -hmm. and where the secular is understood in a positive light. He flips it, you know, religiously, we think about the secular as just the merely worldly, right? And for him, he says, actually, you know, what modernity has given us 
in the West. I think it's been present in other ways in other cultures, but what modernity has given us in the West that has classically, religiously, theologically privileged being over becoming, mm. and that the eternal background beingness is what's real, and the becoming is just this worldly that's passing away. And he says modernity has really flipped that and allowed us to appreciate becoming as valuable in itself uh -huh. and as to, to give a new valuation to time, to the gifts of time, that it's not merely just this circle going nowhere, <laughs> uh -huh. but that there's the growing deepening that we can appreciate in that and, and participate in. And he distinguishes between heteronomy, which heteronomy sees two worlds. There's the eternal other world, uh -huh, uh -huh. and there's this world. And Panikar says sacred secularity is one that rejects that other world beyond the, you know, beyond reality. Um, there's just reality. It rejects this separation and, and instead tries to fold that into our conception of, of what is real, right? So it, it moves away from that two-world picture, which usually tends ultimately and implicitly towards a kind of nihilism mm. in terms of our valuation of this world. So that's opposed to autonomy, which typically has been the perspective of you know, the modern scientific West, which is we are the autonomous agents. We have triumphed over the old metaphysical ways. We have triumphed over nature. Um, we are the determining agents, you know, and, and under rationality and the scientific method, everything yields to us uh, humans as the autonomous center of things. And what he values instead is what he calls autonomy. And I've heard, actually, I think I've heard John and, and Chris mentioning autonomy in different contexts, but autonomy for Panikar, it, basically the, the standard definition of it is the harmonization of non-identical elements. Mm. But what he means by that is that within the whole, the separate parts are also respected in their integrity and brought into harmony in a way that both respects the integrity of the parts and respects the integrity of the whole. And that a sacred, secular, naturalist approach is doing that. And to me, that, that flows and plugs very well into, say, Lehman's surplus model, um, that his, his, you know, the idea of, of, you know, surplus integration, that's an autonomous move in, in mm. Panikar's sense. I, I think um, it might be useful to tease apart something about the notion of the other world, just in passing, because uh -huh. there is a nihilistic implication whenever you say, oh, there's a thing outside of reality, especially <laughs> if you say that's the most valuable thing there is. You've dislocated value from everything that exists. Right? Nietzsche was very critical of that move, uh -huh. but we don't know the full scope of reality. Anything that we might tend to call anomalous or supernormal or supernatural could well in some form turn out to be part of the natural scientific model. It just has to be included in reality, not outside of reality. 
So I think that's an important distinction because we're not saying there's nothing to any of that stuff. We're just saying it can't be cognitively mapped in that fashion. That leads to disaster over time. Mm. And I think everything you're saying about sacred sex, uh, <laughs> secularity, Bruce. <laughs> that's the other series, guys. <laughs> um, I think that speaks to what I sort of said at the beginning about how much the resolution of contradictions is an important part of the spiritual cultivation path. Right. Because we're trying to we're trying to stabilize a, a model and a type of human being in society that can operate in a trans contradictory mode where right. they're still rational, but they're able to bring the sacred and the profane together, the secular and the religious together. And like you were saying about being and becoming right, they have to be brought together in some fashion where we understand what we mean by being as a process of becoming, which is like mm -hmm. the way I discuss the surplus model. Mm -hmm. You encounter the isness of something, but you're not encountering the mute fact of its existence. You're encountering the supra-real fact of its very existence, right? So it's an amplification of what was there. It's an achievement of some kind. So being and becoming need to be understood in, in that shape that transcends contradictions, that we all do very well and more people need to be able to do and which characterizes to some degree the psychology of the centaur, the uh, somatic, emotionally aware, existential, integral, pluralist, possessive vision logic, right? The type of person who's at that yep. on the pronaos, on the stoa, he's on the porch at the top <laughs> of the narrative justification system that affords yep. him some options. He can be useful in the narratives. He can go beyond the narratives in certain ways. And that's, an ongoing process with no end, but yep. we need to be thinking in terms ethically and practically of how we maximally encourage the development of more people of that kind, more, more uh, centaurs, more satyrs, more mm -hmm. uh, divine primates, <laughs> yep. as well as more of the kind of thinking that those people afford into the world, which is the one, the kind of thinking that resolves so many of the outstanding questions about our scientific and our religious models by allowing them to work together. Totally. And th that, uh, that to me is one of the things that I think these, these conversations, the integral stage, you talk, John's work starts to do at an analytic level is it starts to lay the groundwork for a roadmap that is sort of more coherent and more complete simply because of the bridging between sort of a traditional science and a transpersonal integral spiritual kind of view. So that's exciting to me because then with a clearer roadmap, I think you'd be um, afford the opportunity for potentially become more mainstream. Now I live in Stewart Draft, Virginia, so. <laughs> You know, it's Jewish draft Virginia is, it's still optimistic um, in relationship to that. But that's one of the things that's hopeful. And I think that if, you know, maybe something to, for us to really sort of dig into a little bit more in relationship to that, because it's sort of like, well, I really believe a scientific ontology aligns very deeply with this way of being in the world. Um, the other thing I would say is kind of in relationship to modernity, I think that they do with pro progress, the idea of progress you know, and all the sec, uh, sort of the technological and scientific developments, I certainly honor that. We wouldn't be having these Zoom chats and a whole bunch of other things that are afforded in almost everything that I do. At the same time, I think that, and I know John talks about this, and I know you guys would be aware of this, it's, it's that the progressive angle got so uh, linked, I mean, the progress in modernity with capital labor productions and consumption 
that the becoming really became doing and mastering uh, in an instrumental way, uh, as opposed to becoming in a way that is potentially fundamentally, you know, in more proper di dialectic with the being mode. Uh, so there's a doing to become better at one level versus becoming in a transcendent way. So like Zach Stein likes to differentiate your skill development, your ensoulment and your transcendent and becoming for skill development. But I think we also lose the becoming for oriented toward transcendent and the sacred naturalism angle would be able to, I think, hold that and then reorient the shift that there's enough opportunity to become toward uh, uh, an extension of the being rather than become toward doing and mastery. I think this notion of bringing together opposites, you know, towards those ends, just to play with Wilbur a little bit, um, it invites us to develop a theology of frisky dirt. So one of the things to think about then is what are the practices that encourage the maximization of these centaurs, if that's what we need, and of the whole multi-layered narrative system that supports that and allows flow through to that at the maximum natural rate. <laughs> Anybody have any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> that was where I wanted to go. Next with the conversation was really to, to zero in, I think, on where we ended up in our last conversation on elusive eye, which is on the value really of, of focusing on the centaur, not looking necessarily towards those exotic ends of the, the possible levels of mystical attainment. I think they're there. They're valuable. They do have something that, you know, for those who experience it, it's profoundly transformative and meaningful, but realistically, you know, I think what we need is more embodied, grounded, ensouled, ennatured human beings and what kinds of practices can bring us there. And in my last TSK conversation, um, which relates to what I was just also talking about with David Michael Levin, is there's a, a kind of a new offshoot from TSK called full presence mindfulness. And it, it involves a number of different kinds of stages of practice, but one of them is basically just deepening into participation in each of our senses. And I, I think one of the koan like questions that TSK and full presence mindfulness asks you is, can you use your eyes or can you use your ears in a way that's different from what you've ever done before? You know, that's an impossible question. How do you know how to use your eyes in a way that's different from, but it puts you right up at the edge of, of, of habit, right? And asks you to see if there's more potential there and and how can you round out <laughs> you know your participation so i what i was mentioning before was glass and height and in the yoga object those are different ways that we use the senses but you know um 
Levin talks about even, you know, learning to hear in the voice, a deep phenomenological attendance to the human voice, hearing, in fact, the echoes of all kinds of voices from nature, mm -hmm. and to really more deeply feel our participation in the broader ecological world. So I, I think, you know, that's on the contemplative side. I think there's multiple things in terms of skills development and, and other kinds of things, but one could be really uh, deeper appreciation for the affordances of our embodied being and a calling forth of their deeper participatory potentials. Beautiful. Folks, it's that time again. Sorry to do it, but we've got to plug one of our sponsors, Metamodern Cola, the new MC. You know, I don't recommend any products that I don't personally use and stand behind. And I've got to tell you in all honesty that when I need a caffeine boost so that my body thinks it's being attacked and pumps out some defensive chemicals that perk me up a little. And when I don't want to get that caffeine like a sane person would through green tea or like a culturally attuned person would through coffee, you know, I reach for my MC. Metamodern Cola is the only caffeinated carbonated sugar and salt sludge that's in on the joke without giving up on the joke. Should I be providing this addictive poison to my body and my loved ones? <laughs> no, of course not. We'd be better off with uncut cocaine. But am I going to do it anyway because it's what people do and I don't want to deprive anyone of invalid refreshment while the world burns? Sure I am. I shouldn't, but I will anyway. That's simple irony. But in addition to that, I really, really shouldn't. Yes, but no, but yes again to the horror I feel. That's right, there's two full ounces of undiluted, sincere irony in every can of Metamodern Cola. And the first 200 subscribers to use the new app can enter the savings code TIZ, that's T-I-S exclamation mark, to get 20% off the first month of Metamodern Cola mailed directly to your home, no matter what cultural code you live in. Coke may be it, but Metamodern Cola is it. Or is it? I'm drawn to John's term, sort of an ecology of practices uh, in relation. So I think those speak uh, to that. And I think we can think about it at the individual work and group collective work, community work. Uh, you know, what kinds of communities afford a dialogos, a, a particular kind of structure that engages the collective intelligence and feedback and dialogue systems that broaden ways of multiple perspective taking. I think many of the Eastern practices and, you know, contemplative theolo theological practices that you're talking about. I know for myself, I sound to go the logos route often. <laughs> I'm sort of like, you know, that's my, that's my shtick, uh, as it were. Um, so, I mean, I, I organized, for example, a graduate class in um, social psychology. Uh, and the first half of the class is reinterpreting social psychology through the lens of justification uh, and then reinterpreting the, the back half is on influence process uh, and power, love and freedom dynamics. And the goal there is just to help individuals use the science and then organize it from meta systemic principles so that they walk out of there understanding um, the capacity to kind of get an objective yoga view on human behavior as Jai dynamics. We're engaged in justification, influence other, investment from the primate, influence to the relational field dynamics and justify that legitimizing, you know? Um, and many people will, you know, the students will often say, 
you know, that's decentering <laughs> from a logos perspective. It's like, shit, I'm um, some verbal that's constantly justifying my actions. Oh, no. And that, you know, and that kind of destabilizing factor is, I think, necessary for people to then get adjacent to their systems. Um, and if we could institute those kinds of processes, I think I heard you, Bruce, mention that you actually te taught like a cultural awareness course uh, in the context of the elusive eye. And that reminded me of what I was doing with the doctoral students there in that regard. Um, but I think that that would be something I'd like to see more of and developmentally woven through the socialization process uh, of folks in a, wonder, in a wide variety of different contexts. I think that's a really important piece of this, which is, uh, you know, there are a lot of practices that are about deepening and healing and getting involved in relationships and discourse in new ways. And those are all super important and central to this. But practices that afford us some protection from the overwhelming technological and social environment are also really important, right? That gets to a lot of Zach Stein's points that the devices and the culture war are constantly impinging on us and we don't have the space to develop, right? So there's a space. I always like the story that Richard Feynman taught about his father, which is his father would tell him all sorts of things about animals and trees, and they would go on these walks and really dive deep, but he refused to tell him what it was called in English. So early on in school, he felt kind of dumb and out of place, but over a while, he became one of the great geniuses of the 20th century, in part because he thought outside the lockdown of the social narrative. And when we have people super reacting to an overwhelming input of culturally suggestive artifacts, we have to say a big part of this is teaching people really early in life, not, you know, a, uh, a transcultural critique they get when they're 19. They have to be pretty good at this when they're five already in that Taoist sense of trans representational intelligence this what mm. i'm seeing is not necessarily what i'm seeing there's a uh, there's a gap there in which i can operate to create more depth and more sanity and more balance in myself so i think that's a huge feature i think um mm. relational disciplines and taking of perspectives is a huge feature of a new education that promotes centaurs and satyrs I think um, a system built around the kind of post-contradiction model, which is we don't assume that disciplines are necessarily in conflict or that people are necessarily in conflict or that this has to be intellectual rather than emotional, right? Where's the heart of math? Where's the mind of phys ed? All those sort of bringing these things together from a point of view that they're not fundamentally in contradiction. Uh -huh. And also um, for the people who are ready as they become ready, laying out the possibility of gaining the skills or the proto skills maybe that would allow you to explore post justification spaces to your own satisfaction whether that means encountering the isness of something so that it seems self-justified or encountering the way kierkegaard thinks about christ mm -hmm. which is the inherently self-justified and unjustified something <laughs> mm -hmm. right that thing that maxes out justification there's a lot of ways to do it, but there's skills and practices there. Familiarity with paradox, familiarity with koans, familiarity with states of mind and experiences in which you feel like, oh, this is it. <laughs> there's, no other, there's no other justification. This is self-justified. What an amazing uh, moment no. right? to really encourage those things right. in people. And also, I think, to, um, to make the mapping of nature by multiple modalities really central to our education, right? Because I think yeah. that's where 
nature becomes sacred is when it becomes naturalness, which involves our participation. We're getting the kind of nature we want by adapting better to its patterns. And that means more science, but it also means get better at drawing trees. You know, can you draw the continents of the earth? Have you gone out and touched and smelled the plants? There's all these different modalities whereby we can um, sociologically, neurologically, and technologically map nature's patterns in a way that puts us on the same page as nature in a much richer fashion. It makes a naturalness of experience that is a sacred thing. Beautiful. I was a couple of themes there. I'll just hit and, you know, Bruce, if you want to, but um, earlier this week, my doc student defended her dissertation mm -hmm. and it was on looking at the concept of borderline personality disorder through the lens of the unified theory. Um, and basically uh, what, what stood out in relation, uh, it's not going to come as a tremendous shock, um, but fundamentally what you see is a, is a reactive, a, a biological, emotional system uh, that can't get validated in a particular play that then creates destructive opponent processes inside and out, vertically and horizontally. Uh, and so it's a, it's a constant flashing of love and hate, of pride and shame, uh, of dependency, hyperdependency, counterdependency at the attachment level, flashes of powerful pleasure, pain, affects, a fractured identity that's constantly reactive constantly trying to repair past traumas, but bringing the debris of that um, imposing and then reacting in particular kinds of, and it's a destructive, disintegrated, incoherent opponent process structure uh, that then just leaves a trail of debris, um, but, you know, and, and brutal suffering on the individual's part, sort of an emotional vampire experience from the outside and a really, um, an identifiable dysfunctional form uh, and then if we think about that in relationship to possible modes of being and all what you were just describing across the various ways in which you can find yourself in proper relation with constructive opponent processes that create a coherent identification across scales between systems. And then you see that to me, that starts to give a pretty good arc of the kind of sacred of what we want to orient ourselves toward. I think part of that is actually challenging the idea of nature itself. That's something Timothy Morton does, hmm. that um, we inhabit a world where there's a nature and human split. There's the natural and the artificial split. And you know, Slaughterdyke maps a, num uh, you know, a number of steps that have followed from the Enlightenment in the West that through progressive challenging of different forms of epistemology and different you know, metaphysical assumptions, we've ended up in a rather cynical place. But one of the steps along the way is discovering the natural artificiality of human beings huh. and the artificial nature of the nature that we idealize and, 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 and strive for, right? And so Morton is picking up on that tension and saying, you know, how can we relate to the world that doesn't take that bifurcation as foundational, right? And what, what modes of participation can we, you know, have that allow us to appreciate, you know, 
the arising of of you know, massive structures in the city as also something the universe is doing <laughs> in a way, right? Um, but to contradict that a little bit, but not 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 really. I had this experience with my wife, who's from Nepal, and I saw very the effects of very different modes of socialization and education and experience. Mm. And it's very interesting walking down the road or even driving down the highway. She would see all kinds of things in the surrounding landscape, tiny little buds that my eyes didn't even pick up that allowed her to tell me, you know, she could name all of the plants surrounding us and she knew their cycles and she knew their names and she's speaking in a second language, but she knew all of this stuff where she saw a richly peopled landscape. I saw basically a backdrop that was green and brown, right? Mm -hmm. And for her, it was all standing forth as so many intersecting forms of life, each with their own habits and patterns and dynamics. And I couldn't see it, literally couldn't see it. I, I Even she'd pointed a different kind of plant among a, a a swatch of green and I, I didn't know what she was looking at mm. and similarly in you know we're sitting in the house or in a you know out in the public somewhere and there's some kind of mechanical noise I immediately know what that is she has no idea what it is mm. she can't even tell where it's coming from and it you know it doesn't enter her as you know so I just saw so clearly the, the different kinds of uh, you know sensitivities that we can be, you know, cultivated into and, and, and aspects of the world that just don't show up for us. And so I think, you know, how can we, you know, really, I, we're looking at, you know, Montessori or maybe other kinds of educational approaches, which allow for more perspectival and participatory dynamics to be exercised. And there is the analytical aspect too, in that, you know, she's, she learned how to chronicle and name and analyze all of those different parts of the world. And, you know, I've picked that up too about the, mm -hmm. the industrial and the, you know, urban environments, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, just how can we exercise that more and that, that we can actually have a more lively peopled sense of the, you know, the landscapes we inhabit. Yeah. I, um, uh, the article I wrote for revision magazine deals a lot with this, uh, proposition i'm making around the better mapping of nature and multiple modalities but it's hard to get that message across because it sounds very cartesian it sounds like i'm talking about somebody has a chalkboard of equations and, and, and you're over there experiencing a tree but really what i'm trying to point at is the experience for me i associate it with learning to hunt for mushrooms right it's not like i wanted to hunt for mushrooms it's the same as when people do bird spotting it's an increasing acuity about the richness and nuance and details of an ecosystemic environment, right? So you're making a richer map and you feel more natural in that moment and it changes your life over time as well. So there's so many ways to do that, to take that principle of a richer mapping of systems. And I want to, it's complex. Are we different than nature, right? It's a tricky topic. It's become very easy in the last 50 years to denounce that contradiction, but we're, it's a little too casual. Because right? we do mean something by nature. Right? We're signifying something with that term. And we don't want to lose the relationship between these two domains. 
just by saying, oh, they're really one domain. So we don't want to flatten it. I think it's important to um, like the person who wants to undo the pressure of the categorical barrier between human being and nature. I think they're right on. They know what they're doing, but it's the pressure they need to release. The two things have to be closer together, right? It's not that we need to annihilate the conceptual distinction. The conceptual distinction is fine. And we can use that in a really profound way that sort of blurs out and energizes our relationship with nature, or we can use it in a way that cuts us off. But it's the, it's the praxis and the attitude, not the existence of the conceptual distinction that I think makes most of the difference. Yeah, I, I very much agree with all of that. You know, the tree of knowledge helped me get a particular kind of relationship to this issue because it took me a little while to figure out exactly what I meant both by the dimensions of complexity and in particular the relationship between culture and society. Um, because then from a tree of, the, from my, in my language, the tree of knowledge and its extension, the periodic table of behavior basically maps natural behavior patterns, okay? Um, and that then includes us as, the, as cultural apes <laughs> that you know, primates that turned into persons at the oral indigenous level of existence. Um, but what it doesn't really capture is it doesn't capture the, the social institutional techno domain uh, because I think of society like economics, uh, political institutions, tanks, things along those lines uh, as certainly material culture. So they're hybrid in relationship to humans pulling matter up and organizing it and employing it as tools, but they don't afford a particular kind of category. So the tree of knowledge does actually afford a particular perspective on the net behaviors in nature as separate from the artificial technologies that we built. And at the same time, you know, the intertwinement between a cultural system of justification, laws, institutions, jails, and, and everything else that would be infused with that create a very, very, you know, tight knit over, you know, intertwined mapping in relation. And so I certainly appreciate the need to see separateness uh, and on the one hand and continuity and interwovenness on the other. And we want to have good resolutions so that we can get rich, good conformity with our sense of being in the world and the world that we're in. We need good, you know, good descriptive metaphysical systems that will afford that the cultivation of that richness and nuance. Yeah, there's been a steady progress, I think, o over time. Um, a guy named Finkelstein maps this in terms of, you know, the development of physics, but where two distinct categories are brought into proximity, you know, and they're not, they're, one doesn't eclipse the other, but they're brought into proximity like time space. And, you know, he feels that, you know, the progression of, uh, you know, quantum physics is going to take us uh, where he would say that there are false idols where we have these two radically separate things and we, we notice instead more and more their entanglement and their interdependence. And so we could maybe also see that with the natural and the artificial, you know, that there's, uh, you know, artificiality and natural, they, they're, they're real distinctions, but they're also, they're entangled you know, with each other. Um, so I think that's, you know, definitely something that um, basically, yeah, I, I see layman as just sounding importantly, the adjacency note there. Seems, right? seems to come up a lot, layman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like everywhere I look right behind it, this is fucking adjacency thing, man. 
Um, well, I also want to hit the note of sanctified spaces. I think this is very pertinent even to the educational system, which is how is the architecture laid out, right? Yeah. What mood is being created over time in our engagement with these spaces? Are we getting a denuded, desensitized, um, naive modernist situation in which we are not practicing using the richness of our skills? Or are we getting something that that is the human equivalent, right? A structural mapping of the kinds of complexity that we find in the sanctification feeling situations of the natural world, mm. right? It's not that we all have to go to school in the woods, although that might be a good idea, a lot more than we're doing at the moment, but we need to um, go to school in places that evoke the richness, which is similar to what we find in complex ecosystems. Right. There was a very interesting study done years ago about German kids in a little town and their visual and uh, auditory acuity had been tested in like 1890. So in 1990, they went back and tested it again and it had just crashed. And so the speculation of the researchers was, well, they used to encounter the forest where there's 10,000 shades of green. Now they encounter red blue like signs from human spaces that are made to be easy to see and don't require any effort or complexification from your neurooptic system so if we're not encountering things that provoke us to richness of mapping then we are sort of sliding down the desensitization pathway and the the architecture we choose and the environments we set up in which to cultivate ourselves are almost as important as the content of those cultivation practices yeah, I, I really, and I think we're very, I think the socialization is very vulnerable. I'm relatively aware of this and I still, it's just horrifying. I mean, I'm relatively aware of the concept. My, my, my sensory system is not, is, is dev devastating. But I mean, I'll just give you how, uh, you know, how clean it can be to walk through the world, for me at least, and, and be at high levels of abstraction that are completely disconnected from what's going on and any constant reminder. And I think over the last two or three years, in terms of some of my own insolment and awakening, I've developed that. But I'll give you one example. Um, a, a year ago, I was noting we were, I was working around on, we have a, you know, a sort of an electronic thing outside of our house, you know, a big green thing that we planted some shit around and, and I had to fix it. And I was like, why do I just have one of these in my yard? You know, where, you know, how come nobody else has one of these in your yard? And I'm walking around and I realized every third house has one and every other house has a short one. <laughs> so every house in the neighborhood that I've walked around since 2003 has one of these things. And I was completely clueless to it. Like, I mean, I walked around and I was like, why do I just have one? And it, it, and it just, it, it, it speaks to our capacity, I think, to abstract. It speaks to the, our capacity to be plopped in particular kinds of technological worlds. And at some level, certainly, the what we want to create refinement around so we can foster conformity to and what that enrichment affords, those are great questions for the kind of educational process that, you know, engenders centaurs who are, you know, you know, oriented towards a wisdom culture, definitely. At the Krishnamurti school where I worked in India, you know, I'm, I'm conscious in talking about this, even though, uh, you know, India uh, relative to the West is much more poor. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, the, the school where I was at in India was was quite lovely and, and, and beautiful architecturally and big piece of land. And, but 
I talked in the elusive eye with with Layman about the the class on mm. uh, picking up on conditioning, um, but architecturally and how the school was constructed. You know, in, I want to respond to something that Layman was just bringing up, and and, and you too, in terms of like how we're enculturated. Um, the school is built around one central room, yeah. which is a room where no one speaks and anyone who wants to be in silence with each other or by themselves can go into that center room. And that center room is imagined as the heart of the entire school system. It's a non-theological school. It's a non-metaphysical school. They're not imagining that that room is somehow filled with a God or something like that. It's a room where you have an invitation to be sacredly present with yourself and with the world without the cloud of habitual propositional thought, right? To enter a different kind of mode of being with oneself and with the others. And you know, Krishnamurti, when he set up the schools, all of the schools have that. They all are organized around this functional, silent center, um, which you could say is the adverbial core yes. of totally. the adjectival um, mandala of, of the rest of the school, right? And to me, I found it a very beautiful, I don't think every school needs to do something like that, but or identical, but to me, it was very beautiful in the effects. And one thing I noticed was what I would have very, you know, much less commonly found in Western schools was the ability even of three-year-olds to five-year-olds to enter that space and to enter a kind of repose and stability and sensitivity that I, I can't find as readily you know, in Western schools, they were able to just enter that space and open up into a mode that I thought, how is this possible for kids so young? But they just dropped into it. And uh, I thought it was really beautiful. I wanted to, um, yeah, it makes me jealous. I want to go to that school. <laughs> uh, we, we've been playing around a little bit with Wilbur's symbol of the centaur. Uh, and so I always think of it as coupled with the Minotaur, where mm. the centaur has these higher attributes and, and right. this real embrace of the animal. And then the Minotaur, you know, has the seemingly cultural body of a human being, but the mind of an animal, right? It thinks it has self-consciousness. It thinks it is doing valuable things, but it's really not doing very much more than a dog or cat is. It just happens to have words and know how to drive a car. And this is an element of the ancient prophetic role of critique, I think, which has an interesting position in terms of sacred naturalness, because there's not always in the traditions a sense of, of what this higher platform or type of being that we're trying to maximize culturally for a wisdom civilization might be. But there's very often a strong critique of you don't know what your identity is. Your consciousness is insufficient. Your values are not your values. You're, you are as if asleep. And this is, comes from so many of the fiery prophets throughout history. And yep. right now, I think we need that fiery sensibility, right? So that we 
I mean, I, I enjoyed reading through the spiritual naturalism stuff, and I, I broadly agree with what they're doing, but it also is a bit anemic, right? He's like, well, I can be a modern rationalist and once in a while have a little awe or smell the flowers or something like that, right? And that's not bad, but it's a far cry from what we need in order to urgently move our civilization into a more uh, eudaimonic and pro-naturalist structure, right? Yes. Because spirituality that fits very nicely into the um, socioeconomic and ideological architecture of modernity is not going to be able to get us where we need to go, right? So it's, it's not enough to go to meditation class once a week and tell people you're grateful for things. You've got to quit your job and start pulling trash out of the oceans, right? There's, there's, there's huge urgent apocalyptic things that the fire of spiritual tradition has to be invoked in order to address. So we need to think of religion and spirituality in a really passionate, really overwhelming, really juicy way. That's not just a humanist minister at your wedding, but it really does those things that people have turned to spirit to do over the millennia. I really like that. I, I like the, um, I certainly, maybe if there's one positive that comes out of COVID, um, it, it, I think there has been a collective shift in the, hey, everything's going to be okay to, oh, fuck. <laughs> maybe not. You know, um, and that is one of the things then that I would like to, you know, uh, the uh, consequences that maybe we can leverage. And I think to leverage it requires those of us that, you know, at least feel like we have a perspective on the world where we can see. And I, I don't, you know, only when I'm pessimistic, am I really apocalyptic? Oh, my God, the whole civilization is going to collapse. But even in my most optimistic I look out at the world from a meaning and mental health perspective and a base environmental perspective, and it is, you know, kind of appalling how bad we're doing relative to our power, you know, and we should really leverage that in the sense that with passion, meaning that we are not, it, it, whatever valued states of being are, that are, are afforded to us, the insights and awarenesses and understandings that we have relative to what we're actually achieving, that's shit. <laughs> There's a lot and there's an enormous amount of suffering that's associated with that. And so to be complacent about that is not OK, in my estimation. And so um, I really and not to mention the fact that there are a lot of points to suggest that we're really in the midst of a massive flux. And now it's the Kairos of the moment and that we don't make any change. So even in sort of the mundane, all right, I'm not going to go extreme. There's a huge amount of energy to leverage the potential. I say that as a psychotherapist. I say that, I mean, there's just. People are wandering as zombies and they're wandering with broken souls and there's plastics filling up the ocean. There's a, it's a very, very important time. Uh, and we're also operating, I was talking with my brother who's like tracks financial institutions and we had a really nice conversation and it really sort of woke him up. He's like, shit, I see all that. That's amazing. It's like, you know, oh my gosh. And he's like, but oh my God, the entire economic system really is designed not to pay attention to that. It's like, yeah. Yeah, that's part of the problem, you know, but I mean, in terms of the need to bring energy to this and sort of passion and be like, listen, there's a, we have a huge amount of work transformationally to do. Um, we're definitely not getting optimal. So that should energize you. And it may be catastrophic that energize you. And also for those, for me, me, the, the moments of wisdom energy I've encountered, I mean, you know, they're post justification. I mean, you don't even say anything about them. It's like, oh my God, you can live <laughs> and catch flashes of that reality. You know what would what else would orient you? Yeah, that's a place that we got in the 
recent conversation on elusive eye towards the end is both what is needed, but also what is really apparently against the interests of the prevailing order. The prevailing order is not that interested in the cultivation of centaurs, right? So how do we meet that challenge? You know, practically, what do we do? You know, where, where, uh, to me, Krishnamurti is not an exemplar of some of the highest things we need to do, but he did some things right. Mm. And I think one of the things that he pointed to was that we don't need more monasteries. We need more really good schools. Mm. We need schools that really look to develop whole, sensitive, responsive, you know, wise human beings who are aware of, you know, what's going on in the world and aware of some of the corrosive effects of the, the surface magnetizing conditioning that we get from mass production, industrial consumerist society. I would like to sound a note of uh, cheerful pessimism, (laughs) hopelessness, because I think we obviously have to be, as we instinctively are, working on this thing to the best of our capacities and helping other people get into a position to be able to do likewise. There are things that would reverse these trends and solve a lot of these problems, and there are glimmers of their possibility all over, even though it never seems to be actualized. So aside from that, there's an emotional uh, acceptance of, yeah, maybe we're fucked here, right? And that goes along with what we were saying earlier about finitude and matter and Christ and the transcendental embrace of the inherently limited rather than the assumption that the transcendent is a magically unlimited other place. <laughs> it is in the form of the limitation. And so we can say, yeah, I actually looks to me like we might be really doomed here. But that's not going to stop me from working maximally to make things nicer and better and smarter and richer and more coherent. And I think those two things work together in a really interesting way because the fear of losing the hope, the fear of losing the optimism, the fear of being disconnected from the absolute that is not present in the world, that I think keeps a lot of people down, keeps them agitated, helps them buy into symbolic forms of change and subscribe to superstitious forms of religiousness. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that holding both the optimism, the hope, the vision, what can be, the pessimism, um, but also doing it across scale locally, like in your own garden and then globally. I've got many different metaphors uh, that sort of I run through, you know, uh, the more pessimistic one is I'm a flea on a Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's like, there it is, you know, Um, but even as a flea on a Titanic, that doesn't mean that the space that I'm in now in the particular transient moment that I'm in now uh, is meaningless or pointless or anything along those lines. Just simply, there are a multitude of different contextualized frames you can aspectualize. The future is not determined as far as I'm concerned uh, in relation. Um, And there are a multitude of different ways of of reasonable modes and moods that will emerge from my intuition and frame uh, that possibility, the coherent integration of those and the maintenance of 
at least a general orientation. At least I find that that to me is uh, being able to achieve that feels very centering and coherently integrating. And, and I, I feel some stability ranging even from my grayest of gray, you know, kind of uh, glasses to be like, fuck, to, you know, even rosier pictures of baby and be like, actually, I'm the same <laughs> at one level of aspectualizing. Depending on the time scale you take, 100% we are fleas on the Titanic. <laughs> you know, whether it's, you know, imminent disaster through climate change or whether the sun expands and engulfs <laughs> us or <laughs> whatever, right. we, are, we are fleas on, you know, on the Titanic. And who comes to mind right now is, is Michael Dowd and his wife, Connie Barlow, um, both for the way that they're holding that mm. um, in, you know, Michael Dowd, he wrote early on the, you know, Thank God for Evolution book and things like that. And they have some wonderful teachings on the gifts of death, showing, you know, that that death as part of the cosmos is really a generative mechanism. You know, without cell death, our whole bodies would just be round globes, you know, without death <laughs> of, uh, you know, different other kinds of cells. You know, that's what makes the, the trunk of a tree. And I'm there's just so many examples that that's how death and life work together in the formation of anything. On the positive constructive side, one of the things that they do regularly is teach the universe story to children to help children have a deeper sense of their participation in the amazing cosmos that we inhabit. On, on the other side of what they're doing is they're now doing work that they call post-doom. And after so many years, Michael Dowd has really gotten to the point that I don't think we're really going to turn around from some of the, the negative, you know, deleterious effects that we're expecting from climate change. I think we have to take that on board and not just pretend that we're going to keep it forever at bay. This is probably part of our future. How do we become wise, responsible stewards and human beings, even in the, the likely cycles of death that are coming within decades, probably. And, and how do we do both at once? Yeah, the, the, uh, I mean, the doom of everybody at different scales is an important feature of psychological health, right? Whether it's just people who are you know, neurotically anxious about their own death or whether you're talking about Heidegger's suggestion that you only become an authentic being by a confrontation with the possibility of the end of all your possibilities, that, that really has to be folded in to a, a therapeutic uh, multi-scale approach to living. And I think in terms of like what I've been describing as the enriched mapping of nature into the human technological, social, and psychological, and neurological domains, death is a huge part of nature. It's not just all magical, positive life. It's constantly working with Eros and Thanatos in a coupled way to sculpt out its forms. And if we don't viscerally take on board half of what nature is doing, we're not <laughs> going to be able to map it very well, and we're not going to be participatory naturalists very well. But it's not, um, I think, even though we we maybe rightly need pessimism and hopelessness to some degree to have clear eyes about this thing and to be psychologically sane, that doesn't mean nothing is possible, right? That we're definitely all people whose energy or whose ethics drives them to continue the action, regardless of the fact that we're going to die and everybody's going to die. 
But there's also this uh, astonishment, which comes back to the spirituality, the miracle of organic organization. Like, how do I do anything? All right. How do I keep kids alive for a day? How did I fix the plumbing? How did I plant those? I don't seem capable of looking after a garden. And yet there it is. I appear to have looked after it somehow. Each successful organization of the world in a way that isn't totally rigid or totally unstructured, organic organization, it astonishes me. I don't know how it was pulled off. It's a miracle every time. So miracles of organic organization are possible and will continue to happen. And that's an important part of our spiritual orientation in this time, I think. Totally. And I think that you're cultivating ideas of awe and wonder, you know, which, uh, you know, I, I certainly some positive psych stuff is trying to grab a hold of, uh, but I think we've certainly been underdeveloped in relationship to that. I also, from a clinical vantage point, we've made a horrible error at a pop level, at least, uh, of conflating negative affect with symptoms of psychopathology mm-hmm. um, and not understanding at all how to sort out the functional aspects of negative affect and to be, uh, you know, effectively participating with that to cultivate growth as opposed to having negative reactions to negative affect, those secondary negative reactions, which then, you know, batten down the hatches, get defensive structures, try to then control and avoid. At a most basic level, we see that neurotic looping uh, at really a foundational level. And, and our whole society doesn't really afford much even basic um, uh, containment that, uh, that enables coherent integration around those types of things. So modeling what is the reality of death and destruction relative to eros and construction, you know, that the Jordan Peterson will be getting very famous <laughs> through a lot of discussions around that. And clearly holding that as part of what a sophisticated individual can then conform and fulfill functional forming uh, is is required and definitely, and, and that's something that's definitely underdeveloped, I think, in at least the standard uh, modernist socialization practice. Yeah, I think we haven't um, we haven't done a good job of integrating negative affect, partly because we're we're downstream of people who are proposing patterns of education that don't take contradictions into account. So the people we were saying earlier who can think past contradictions can go, okay, how do we play with positive and negative together? Um, I was really affected by Carol Dweck's book on the growth mindset, Hmm. because it seemed to me that by asking people to do things that are difficult for them, they simultaneously get self-esteem and humility. Uh And if you reward their intrinsic capacities or Uh disenfranchise them because they lack those intrinsic capacities, those are both disasters. You don't want fake self-esteem and you don't want to be shunned. You want the sense of confidence and humility. The contradictions are come together in the same place that you get from doing things you're not good at and trying to do them well. Amen. I think that she's a, that's a really good example of a nugget of insight uh, that was afforded in relationship to this. You know, from my vantage point in the sort of theoretical structural side, the issue is I think we could do a hell of a lot better creating a generalized architecture uh, that would not... You know, so if you look at like internal locus of control, self-efficacy kinds of research, the way Bandura frame that growth mindset stuff, I wish we could, from a psychological theorist research perspective, I wish we could afford people a better structure so they could cumulatively build off of those insights rather than grab them and then exaggerate, exaggerate what they are and turn them into fads. Um, that, that to me is the sort of an academic and educational responsibility of my field that could do a little better, but I completely agree with you. That's a very crucial angle on a healthier functional mindset. In one of my classes, 
sometimes uh, back when we met in person, we used to go out because the classes were at night. We would go out under the stars and sit by a lake and everybody would reflect on and then do a recitation around the gifts of death that they can recognize in their own life. Um, you know, and I, I was always afraid of that being too morbid uh, for people who are not used to processing that kind of stuff. But it was always in the end, turned out very rewarding for the mm. participants, especially I think being under the night sky and, and really feeling that we're part of this bigger <laughs> universe. Um, it, it was a beautiful exercise. Uh, I think we're getting close to our, our time for this talk, but when you mentioned the internal locus of control, one of the themes that I was thinking about for this talk, but maybe we can put it off for the next one, is the intersection of shamanic modes of practice mm. and self-development and the, you know, the psychotherapeutic um, modes, especially within Utah that you're cultivating and, and looking at their intersection. I'm thinking, for instance, in the shamanic cultures and indigenous cultures, the role, for instance, of the medicine wheel and working ritually and inactively and personally with the medicine wheel to help every individual develop an internal locus of control and to really viscerally understand what that is. So maybe that's a horizon for, for future exploration. Yeah, I'd love that. Uh, I'd, I'd love to, uh, in fact, I'll share here, I'm no longer a licensed clinical psychologist. We can dialogue. I decided to not renew my license this year. Um, and it has a lot to do with some of my own evolution on healing and the, what is needed right now, and sort of from a meta-psychology view. Uh, and the sort of like, a collective awakening gets out of sort of the cloistered uh, co confidential therapeutic room uh, and into, wait a minute, we actually are in a collective situation that needs a shift. Uh, and some of the co confines and constraints of the therapy room, in my estimation, I actually then, I always used to criticize psychiatry and now I'm sort of like, well, actually my field's got its own problems, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and it's, and so then that, you know, has situated me as a couple of other developments then to be much more oriented towards, um, you know, shamanic healing in certain regards and really think about that. And that's an area in which I'd love to, uh, you know, extend a conversation. So that that's a great uh, bridge then to perhaps to a future exchange. Yeah, I'm totally in on that. I've got a lot of things to say about shamanism and I'd like to link some of them to uh, this mapping process, because another thing about nature that needs to be mapped much better and more richness by human systems is what we call the irrational, the nonlinear, mm. the complex, the subconscious, all the domains in which the shamans are developing skill and which the conventional modern mind has sort of left off the table because it doesn't make any sense. But you have to be able to work healthily with what doesn't make sense and isn't perceived because that's how nature runs. <laughs> totally. Be great. Also, oh, wonderful. I love you guys. This is fantastic. I like where we get to. <laughs> yeah. Love you both. Yeah. Really fun. Amen, brothers. To explore this and uh, yeah, looking forward to more. Yeah. No, I really feel uh, I'll give a shout out to John because I really feel like we're cultivating a dialogos here. I really feel I, I, I'm, I'm feeling the growth of this sacred naturalism on the horizon and in my soul. And we're getting some conformity to it in a particular way through these conversations uh, and mirrored in both of you. And I really deeply appreciate that. So thanks. Aho. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs>